Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Athletic. Totally football show. Today, Ange gets fresh legs. League Cup first legs have... Chelsea looking on their last ones and lots more besides as we run up all the midweek news and look ahead to this weekend and half a round of Premier League action plus the start of AFCON 23 and more in this Totally Football show. Listener, thank you for making us your audio companion of choice for the next... Well, I think we're going to be here for probably about an hour or so, but however much of it you want. Stay tuned to right to the end, though, because you've got Maher Mazahi coming up with a pretty special AFCON 23 preview that we recorded a short time ago, and it features great AFCON info and some amazing geographical facts that you can entertain your friends and family with. Uh, a lot of those coming from... Big Jack Lang, who's here with us in the studio. All right, Jack. James, hi. Good to see you. Duncan Alexander's also present. Hello. Hello, Duncan. And on the big screen right now, all the way from Manchester, Carl Anker. Hi, James. Hi. As I say, AFCON coming up later on. Lots going on this weekend. Half a round of Premier League action. Uh, there's all Asian Cup getting underway as well with the likes of Qatar, Lebanon and Australia, India. Uh, but we're going to begin today, I think, first of all, we should say very best wishes to Sven Juran Eriksson, because this Thursday, I think everyone saw the news, uh, Sven revealing on uh, Swedish radio that he's suffering from a terminal cancer. So, uh, yeah, our, our thoughts are with Sven, a terrific chap and a man with a pretty extraordinary footballing career. Now, five games to look ahead to in the Premier League this weekend. This is because this is the Premier League's version of a winter break. Match Day 21 getting spread out across the next two weekends. So the five games this time around, all of which will be on telly, are on Friday, Burnley-Luton. Saturday lunchtime, Chelsea-Fulham. Tea time Saturday, Newcastle-Man City. And then Sunday, two games, Everton-Villa at two. And then Man united against Spurs at 4.30. All of them are available to watch. If you could only see one this weekend, which one is it? And why is it Burnley Luton, Jack Lang? Took the words right out of my mouth, James. Uh, yeah, I, I may well make alternate plans for Friday night. No way. What? But it's 18th against 19th, Jack. It's a battle for survival. Sure, yeah, but I mean... This, oh, this, is, says more, this says more about me than it does the fixture, but being able to watch all of the rest, yeah. uh, five, five is a lot for me. Okay. And that, I know that, you know, I know. I'm uh, not saying you have to watch five. Skip, by all means, this Man United Spurs business on Sunday <laughs> and focus on, on, on two. Ter- no, because, uh, well, Luton in terrific form late. Not all results have gone their way, but they've been in. They've you know, been in some games against really, really tough opposition. Man City, Arsenal, narrowly lost to Chelsea. They did beat Newcastle and Sheffield United. They did lose to Burnley back in October at Kenilworth Road in what was... Uh, A forgotten fixture because it was delayed, wasn't it? Because Luton's ground had to ah, be... Um, so it was. I, I'm going to say, I was going to say improved, but I'm not sure it was technically mm. improved. But, but yeah, that was a bit... Probably their worst performance of the season, but yeah, I mean Burnley at home, they've lost nine out of ten, which is mm. you know nine out of ten at tough home. Tough place to go, no. But then they have got a weird thing where they're, they're the the most wasteful team inside the box this season, but the best, most clinical team from long range. They um their hatred of the XG model um is quite upsetting. Break that down for me again. They have the worst shot conversion rate inside the box, yeah, but the best one outside the box. Yeah. So, what does that mean? Well, they're good at shooting or. Shots from long range have gone in, and inside the box, less so. 
It's not basically. It's not. You don't want it that way around. It's not. Okay. It's a. It's a statistical outlier like okay. Burnley season. Clarets haven't beaten the Hatters at Turf Moor since Carl March nineteen ninety five. Do you know what was number one back then? I'm gonna guess the Spice Girls. You can guess what you want. You're never gonna get it. Never gonna get it. I didn't even know this record existed. Frankly. March ninety five. March ninety five. Jack. Uh, I will take you at your word that I'm never going to guess okay. it. Okay. It was a comic relief single called Love Can Build a Bridge. Oh, yeah. Do you remember this? I do, yeah. Do you remember who it was? Comp- you know, who, who sang it? No, just a load of celebs and singers, isn't it? No, you got Cher, Chrissy oh. Hind and Nana Cherry. Oh. Love Can Build a Trampler of uh, vocal talent. Anyway, uh, of limited relevance to this game this weekend. And also, I don't yeah. can love build a bridge. Not sure. Well, I'd, go, I'd go with you're being it. Isambard Kingdom Brew now. Myself. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, but a huge game this 18th against 19th, and Luton with a chance with a victory in this game to jump out of the bottom three. Uh, remember, they've got that game in hand as well because Everton, who are in 17th spot, are only a point above them. Everton themselves have a big game this weekend. As mentioned, they are going to be hosting Aston Villa, perhaps one that you'll find more tempting, Jack Lang. I think so, a touch. Yeah, I I think this should be quite a good game. Villa seem to have slightly run out of gas. Really? Yeah, maybe. A, a couple of more recent performances have been have been less impressive. Uh, obviously, Everton have got Dominic Calvert-Lewin available after his his suspension was overturned, mm. which is good. But it's interesting with Everton, just as they kind of seem to have cancelled out the the points deduction, and everyone's thinking, "Wow, you know, people are doing that thing where they're comparing their where they would have been, are oh, they'd have been above <laughs> Man United, etc." That they kind of seem to have splotted out. Mm. Three um, defeats on the spin. Three now. defeats on the spin. Nine points down the down the drain. One less than ten. That's good. That's very good stats from you. Uh, so yeah, kind of two teams whose confidence will be lower than it may have been a few weeks ago. So mm. hopefully that will translate into a a good match rather than a one dominated by fear. Indeed, Ru Lang says Everton seemed like a really tough test for Villa. I had a bizarre dream, says Ru Lang, where Gary Lineker was praising Nathan Patterson at length, who has been great, and I probably subconsciously felt, continues Ru Lang, that this was going under the radar. But if he does something. I think he means Gary at this point. I'll be freaked out. Well, um, tune in to match the day to see how eerily prescient um, Rulang's an If you can shape the future, then getting someone to praise Nathan Patterson feels a slight waste of that power. I don't know. You know, this fixture has been going on since football began. Really? And, um, and you can kind of drop in at any point and it's probably a 6 out of 10 game at any point. So I think this is likely to be above that Above average. a 6 out of 10. Yeah, so. What out of 10 would you give Chelsea-Fulham the early match on Saturday? Um, well, it's the most one-sided derby in, in English history, isn't it? Fulham, have, uh, they've got a 10% win rate against Chelsea, which is the lowest of, uh, of any kind of combination of fixture in, in English league history. Derby or otherwise? Yeah. So, but... There's Again, no team that has a win percentage that's the, the, lower against the, a given opponent. That have played each other 50 or more times. Okay. Which is reasonable over yeah. hundreds of years of, of football. But again, confounding the past, I think Fulham are pretty good at the moment. Um, they were they outplayed Liverpool for quite a long time in, in midweek. Um, and, you know, they deservedly beat Arsenal the other week. Um, so, yeah, I think Chelsea continue to have problems so if Fulham are going to record a rare win against their neighbours then this, mm. this could be it Excellent Carl you're, you're thinking uh, both these two teams Chelsea and Fulham lost narrowly in the League Cup semi-final first legs midweek did you watch either of these? I did indeed I, okay. I was certainly a lot more impressed by Fulham's exploits than, than Chelsea's Chelsea remain Chelsea which is hard to explain you know, a team that is they're a theoretical football team at this point in time. I think they, they should be eventually good and find a way over the triumph. Over Middlesbrough, but I have no idea how they managed to lose that game. Whereas Fulham, Fulham's game plan was, was really good. They you know very much allowed Liverpool to have 
possession in the non-lethal parts and and they broke on them very very quickly uh, I thought if it hadn't been for Dekodova Reed's slightly wasteful approach in the 63rd minute they could have got themselves a goal and uh, eventually got themselves a famous win at Anfield but wasn't to be wasn't to be two goals in three second half minutes by Liverpool courtesy of Curtis Jones Cody Gakpo lovely uh, lovely mm-hmm. flick would you call that a flick mm, uh, side hit side foot tuck I'd say tuck yeah, that's nice yeah uh, giving Liverpool the advantage, but only half time really in this semi final second legs. In a fortnight, do you regard Fulham's prospects of turning that around better or worse than Chelsea's, who had a 1 0 defeat at the Riverside to mid table championship side Middlesbrough? This, despite, as Carl was hinting, having 72% of possession and 18 shots to Burroughs, six. What do you think, Carl? You saw this game as well. Yeah, I think. I think Chelsea are more likely to go through than Fulham at this point in time. But again, I'm I'm sort of judging things on the on the theoretical things for Chelsea at this point in time. They they had a lot of shots. A lot of them for, were from outside the box. I think mm. five different players had uh, outside the box efforts that can only really call speculative. Um, Middlesbrough's game plan was really really good, and Michael Carrick was was smart to to make changes, even though he lost two players to injury early on in the first half as well. So, ooh. I thought I thought Chelsea were awful, really bad. Um, so, like as Carl said, you know Middlesbrough lose their best, you know their main attacking threat after three or four minutes. Um, so you, they might have been a bit decaffeinated after Emmanuel Latte <laughs> exit. There it is. Uh, but yeah, honestly, Chelsea, they just uh, should Bar have had a. I mean, yeah, chapeau and that. But um, <laughs> yeah, thanks. Should. Should uh, Burrow have had a penalty, and would they had had VAR been in operation? Which was that for the for the tackle on Latte? Oh, sure. Yeah, I th- taking out Latte. If you like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it was a reasonable shout. Basically, Chelsea. I mean, the goal was looked bad mm. because it was you know a ball over the top, and uh, Isaiah Jones outran Levi Colwell, and but Moses Caicedo just going completely to sleep. He was tracking the run of of Hackney and then suddenly he wasn't mm. um, but yeah I just I just cannot get my head around so many of Chelsea's players I thought Raheem Sterling was really bad I thought Mudrick when he came was absolutely awful the, the bench I know they've got loads of injuries but you, spending that much money and you've got basically Mudrick Broyer and then nine Regen. children I've never heard of um, yeah I, I just I cannot really fathom what's going on and mm. I mean it's just quite funny. Had you heard of Hayden Hackney before uh, Tuesday night? It sounds made up, doesn't it? it sounds... No, I think it's a splendid name, but is it a footballer? For me, if you said I bought a new folding bicycle, it's a Hayden Hackney. I'd have gone, that sounds <laughs> splendid. But uh, no, but uh, it's a lovely name, Hayden Hackney. Full credit to his parents. Mm. Yeah, uh, and to him for that goal. Just on it, just mm. on Chelsea and their you know relentless pursuit of players that doesn't really work. I mean. One of the best players the following night for Fulham was Willian, who you know mm. looked looked great. And you know, Chelsea, I mean, I'm not convinced by the Fernandez Caicedo partnership at all, really. And you know, they've got Lavery as well to come in, but you know, they, none of those players are playing well. It didn't I, you, you would expect by now some sort of um, cohesion between them, but it, it's not coming. And I don't, and I think it felt like this game was a bit of a line in the sand for a lot of Chelsea fans. They've been quite supportive of Pochettino up until now, but I think there's, there's the classic kind of, I saw a lot of people demanding John Terry was on the bench because then the players would care. And I don't th- I think that's such a, the idea that the players don't care is, is nonsense, but they're not playing well. And it does feel like the experiment's slowly drifting away from, from a sort of positive outcome. Right. Chuck is silver, I think. Uh, having words with some of the travelling supporters who were uh, vocal in their displeasure at the 1-0 scoreline at the uh, final whistle of that first leg. Do you share Carl's optimism that Chelsea have this at the bridge next time? Um, and what about Saturday's game with Fulham? Yeah, I mean, I th- I don't see them improving drastically anytime soon. I th- um, they seem to be really waiting for Christopher Nkunku to come back and obviously he's done so and then quickly picked up another injury I mean it's the same thing with with Lavia like Lavia came back finally played substitute appearance the other day and is out again so until they get some of these players back uh, I mean just uh, so many players in that team are dying to be <laughs> removed from the team like like 
playing so badly they need to be replaced yet there's no one ready to come in for them so until yeah a bit of the squad depth translates into competition for places i wouldn't be very confident at all in them in them mm. Uh, beating Borough, to be honest, and and it's the same for Fulham. They've got the fourth best XG in the Premier League this season, better than Man City and Villa and Arsenal, um, and yet they've massively underperformed it because they waste chances and they don't have play. I mean, you know, Nicholas Jackson's been hot and cold, but he has at least been reasonable at scoring, and he's now at Afcon, so that's another another blow for them. So I wouldn't be convinced they can beat Fulham, and I wouldn't be convinced they can turn a, turn it around against Middlesbrough. Okay. Great to hear that from you, Duncan, a man who tipped Chelsea to finish second this season. I, yeah, second in the bottom half, 12th. Could happen. <laughs> All right. Uh, very shortly, we'll have a quick look at uh, the other two games coming up this weekend. Of course, that's Newcastle Man City, Saturday tea time, and then the big one Sunday, Man United Tottenham. For most of us, January means New Year's resolutions. But for the footballing world, January means one thing transfers there's a lot going on and to stay on top of every move that matters you need the athletic football podcast they were prioritizing somebody like mason mount five days a week we'll help you cut through the noise with the most reliable reporters in the industry david ornstein adam crafton laurie whitwell and many more will not only tell you what the deal is but how it happened too so make sure you don't miss a single transfer beat in January with the Athletic Football Podcast. Listen for free wherever you get your shows and hit follow and subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Newcastle, Man City, only three teams in the Premier League have no players going to either the Asian Cup or the Africa Cup of Nations. Two of them facing each other at St James's Park Saturday in the shape of Newcastle and Man City. The other one, do you know who the other one are? Anybody? Do you, does anybody know who the other one is, rather? Are the team with no players going mm. to Asian or... Luton? No, it's Burnley. Yeah. All right. Who's looking forward to Newcastle and Man City? Man City, perhaps. Especially because they've got Kevin De Bruyne coming back and looks like Erling Haaland is shaping up for a return as well. The Kevin De Bruyne news, which obviously saw him come on in the FA Cup and assist moments later. How bad is that for the rest of the league? How bad is that for Phil Foden, who's really been enjoying things in his absence? I think Phil Foden should be fine. Um this 10 or more central role Foden's been playing and is good and is interesting if you're of England persu persuasion but the return of Kevin De Bruyne doesn't necessarily mean Foden won't be playing it's just Foden will go to the position Guardiola thinks is best which is out wide the return of Haaland is probably more significant for Foden because that pushes Alvarez back into kind of number 10 contention as well I mean De Bruyne's assist just the nature of it was a reminder of something that City have been missing, which is that kind of classic City left-footed attacking midfielder waits for De Bruyne to run round the outside and cut it back. You know, the, the classic City goal over the last five or six years, which, you know, I don't think any of the other midfielders really offer that kind of lung-busting run capacity that De Bruyne has, which is nice. And also the fact that neither Mateo Kovacic or Mateus Nunes have really, um, you know, pulled up trees since the move. Nunes has had a lot of chances in recent weeks and I think he he has some of the same athleticism but obviously not the same uh, influence on games. So yeah, from City's perspective, obviously great news but I, I agree with Carl. I think Foden is, is going to keep playing a, a, a major part even if it is up slightly wider. I mean, there's also getting both Haaland and De Bruyne back is in interesting because obviously De Bruyne is right-footed and whips it in and it tends to be slightly easier chances for Haaland on his left foot, um, which obviously Foden is left-footed. So, you know, Haaland's not had a bad scoring season this season, but um, I imagine his scoring rate will go up in the spring. Mm. Eddie Howe's Newcastle have lost five of their last six league matches. You mentioned Fulham's record against Chelsea. Newcastle have only won one of their last 32 Premier League meetings with... Uh, Manchester City, although they did actually beat them already this season at St James's Park in the mm. Carabao Cup. We've seen them 
pull off some very special performances at St James's. Yeah, the the draw last season was sort of the the coming out of of this current Newcastle. You know, that was when I think people realised that they were better than than we thought they were going to be. Trippier goes for it, and how? What a stunner from the man that Manchester City let go. You know, City came back in that game, but it was a very entertaining match. And you know, historically, these games between these teams, you know, Sergio Aguero used to get like eight goals per match. Um, and they were always pretty good. So, yeah, good clash. Very nice. We're excited to hear what you make of Man United against Spurs, which is happening Sunday at 4.30. Spurs could have two new signings in the starting lineup for this one. Carl, been a big name putting pen to paper for Man United in recent weeks. Of course, that's Sir Jim Ratcliffe, who might actually be there for uh, this game on Sunday. Have we seen any concrete changes yet? When do you think we will and what, what are they likely to be? And generally, has the mood shifted at all at Old Trafford, Carl? The Ineos deal is, is still yet to be ratified, but uh, Sir Dave Brailsford and Sir Jim Radcliffe have been cited in and around Carrington, uh, having handshakes with various people at Manchester United. I think the most noticeable change on Man United fan base is um, marginal gains is the new buzzword. <laughs> At Manchester United, everyone seems to uh, have adopted Sir Dave Brailsford's approach to marginal games, which is, depending on who you talk to, uh, you know, finding incremental changes that make things better or jiffy bags. But I'll let Duncan um, continue that because well, he's a better cyclist than I am. The thing that's funny with, for me at the moment with the Ineos at United thing is that obviously, and rightly so, given what's gone before, people are excited about a new era and a, you know a, a better approach to everything, from mm. transfers to to squad building to every you know whatever. But at the moment, the Ineos Grenadier cycling team are very much like Manchester United in that they've taken their eye off the ball in recruitment. They've got a few aging stars who they're sort of still reliant on. So it's quite funny that you know they. Apparently coming in to to bring a new era. Had a lot, of, had a lot of injuries. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, it's, it's difficult because obviously a lot of the things that Brailsford has been lauded for, and a lot of the if you go through all the book quotes and whatnot, and the things that he is uh, talks of being very very uh, effective in British cycling, are things that are regarded as relatively par for the course of any top European super club now. So recruiting well, doing proper scouting, uh, this management concept of aces and places where you make sure uh, there are complementary partnerships in all important parts of your organisation. These are things that you expect of a club like Bayern Munich or of a Liverpool or of a Manchester City. So it's all well and good in saying, yep, this is this is what's happening to Manchester United in 2024. But you're going, but uh, your crosstown rivals have been doing that for however many years. Mm. How on earth... Yeah, so and the re- this, this is the long road to competency. I think is is what's now being said, and and the reason Team Sky had such success so quickly took a year or two, but was that they were doing stuff to Carl's point that other teams weren't doing, so mm. that did give them advantage. So okay. United playing catch up isn't necessarily so. The same. Don't expect any massive changes overnight. Just a question to Carl: Like, oh, sorry, do you see? you know, within Man United's structure, do you see sufficient agility to change quickly if that's what Ratcliffe and, and Brailsford ask for? Or, you know, because from the outside, it looks like a club that has been slow to change. So can they accelerate now, do you think? Uh, it will take a lot of, uh, I, you keep using this term audits. Uh, we know that one of the big four companies has been requested by Sir Jim Radcliffe to look, to look through Manchester United to see if there's any ways to streamline the organisation in order to make them more agile and make that turn. So I don't think any sort of huge change can happen between now and the end of the season, but the organisation at the start of next could conceivably be different to the one that's that's been that's gone before. I'm not particularly optimistic about anything going on at Manchester United right now because because tactically on the field, Eric Tenag is particularly stubborn in a way that makes it very, very difficult to see United go from this sort of 6th, 7th Europa League-ish level to a top five contending team. Mm. Tottenham very much in the top five at the moment. As mentioned, 
with all sorts of fresh legs for Ange Postacoglu this weekend. Timo Werner, Radu Dragozin could both be making their debuts. Charlie Eccleshare underlining how big that would be. It would be as many January signings making their Spurs debut in January as they've seen in the previous 12 years because, of course, they traditionally do their business so late on in the month. They've also got uh, Mickey van der Ven, who looked outstanding in the opening months of the season, back available again. Christian Romero could be back. All very, very exciting for Spurs fans. Everyone's got a Timo Werner hot take, Jack. Mm. What's yours? I think it's quite exciting. Good. Uh, I Obviously, he was pretty rubbish at Chelsea. There's no getting around that. Uh, and he's been fairly... Average since going back to to Leipzig, like he hasn't been a starter. They've got a lot of forwards, and he very quickly tumbled down the uh, pecking order. But given the way Postecoglou likes to play, given mm. the resources that Spurs have, that's you know Son is away for one thing, but they haven't got they aren't overloaded with attacking options. Right. Um, obviously, he can he can play out wide, but he's a very different option to Richarlison up front. What is better about Ange's football? rather than, say, the one he was experiencing at Chelsea? Well, I think it's about speed, pressing, intensity. They like to do quick transitions. Um, I just think you could have said some of those things about Tuchel's football as well, but I just think he... um, I don't know, there's a kind of intensity and almost chaotic element Mm. sometimes to Spurs' football in a good way that I think uh, could be right up his avenue. Tuchel got more out of... Werner than any other Chelsea manager because I think he, he understood that Werner needed best to, to play the, play in a two. So trying to play him with Kai Havertz worked. Uh, I mean, it wasn't a perfect time at Chelsea, but uh, Tuchel definitely managed to get, get something out of Werner to put the frighteners on Pep Guardiola's Manchester City more than once in, in, this, in being just this latent near offside threat at all points in time. And we've seen from Postacoglu that he likes his strikers to play right on the line of, of, of offside to, to really be that latent threat. So that could work. Uh, you may have noticed that put an inflection when I said that. Could mm. work. The thing about Werner is he's he's a very boom or bust, very, very confident mm. striker. He's not necessarily a striker with um, a go-to skill move necessarily. He, he's very, very quick in one direction. That's how he gets, you know, that's how he gets a lot of his goals. But uh, in terms of putting disguises on, on finishes in order to, to beat a goalkeeper doesn't necessarily work. So, when he's hot, he's really hot because he, he's not thinking about how do, I, how do I put the ball in the back of the net in the way that you ca- can see him do or did see him do a lot at Chelsea. Um, so we, if you're a Spurs fan, you're hoping he doesn't get caught from two or three VAR offside decisions. And then you, you see that slow motion look where he just goes, oh no, and his head drops. He obviously had that miss for Chelsea against Leeds where... He it was on the it was literally on the goal line. This is why you don't get one point zero xg for any shot because sometimes they miss. But a bit like sometimes when you're cooking and there's an ingredient and you're mm. like, well, what's, that's not that doesn't do anything. A but, bay leaf, for example. Yeah, but actually it's quite important. I don't know if bay leaves can be that important, but anyway. Oh, they are. Okay. Yeah. But but Werner's like that. I think he not only he makes other players look better as well because more space appears because he's as Jack was saying he's just so chaotic. It's um. And I think if you, if you thought of one team in the Premier League right now where that would help, it is probably Tottenham. So mm. I think, you know, and, and make if he plays, you know, a debut away at Manchester United, who apparently were also vaguely interested in, in signing him, has got a narrative pouring out of the, of the <laughs> casserole pot. I think also sometimes we, we risk focusing too much on tactics and not yeah. enough on, you know, personal relationships. Postecoglou has already shown at Spurs mm. that he is the kind of coach that mm. can coax performances out of players who weren't doing well. Hishalison is an obvious example, but Bissouma is another one. Maybe Werner just needs to be told, you know, go out there and run at him, mate. Mm. Very so, nice. you know, maybe that's enough. Okay. One thing for narrative, I did have been working with Liam Tharm on one, mm. uh, Tottenham Hotspur's propensity for scoring cutback goals and, and two, Manchester United's weakness to conceding cutback goals. Um, so, Expect cutbacks on Sunday. Okay. Not just from uh, Sir Jim Ratcliffe. Nice. Very nicely (laughs) done. Very nicely done. Uh, Andre Onana uh, is apparently going to be featuring for this game. Originally, he was planning to uh, play in this match and then jet off and feature in Cameroon's Cameroon's AFCON opener against uh, Guinea uh, just 24 hours later. Essentially, do a Mark Hughes, I think that's the terminology. 
The Cameroon Football Federation was serious. They said, nah, none of you are right. We'll, uh, we'll get on without you. So I don't know what that means. It's rather embarrassing. He shouldn't, he should not be still with Manchester United right now. He should be with his national team camp. Now, asterisk, you do get the sense part of it. He doesn't really want to be there due to this agreement. He had with the song of the World Cup and the odd situation he's got with Samuel Eto'o as well. And then possibly the situation he's got with the president of Cameroon as well. But it, it is remarkable that a goalkeeper has decided to delay his journey to AFCOM this far back mm. uh, and then still expecting to to start as their number one goalkeeper. It also is, I think it's, if you're Altai Bayin, the Manchester United's number two goalkeeper, this is quite embarrassing mm. that such exploits have been made to keep Onana here. Um, it's a very strange situation because statistically Onana is a good Premier League goalkeeper. He's outperforming his expected goals on target uh, and he's one good reason why Manchester United's mediocre defence isn't getting worse and yet it's hard to shake this connotation that uh, it's all a bit of a, a farce isn't it? Just on Carl's point about Anana being good yeah he's on plus 3.8 goals prevented which is the fourth best in the Premier League season who's top? Vicario with 6.9 so we're expecting goals this game it could be a goalkeeper tour de force Fascinating Duncan now uh, very shortly just heard mention of AFCON and Cameroon will be previewing the tournament with our very special friend Meher Mazahi, who I'm delighted to say is joining us again. That and some top Brazil news in a moment on the Totally Football Show. We're all driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. According to their own survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Remember the last time you were hiring and how slow and overwhelming it was? Well, you don't need to go through all that again. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. And because you listen to The Totally Football Show, Indeed is going to give you a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash totally. That's I-N-D-E-E-D.com slash totally. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed at Indeed.com. You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson, the Football Content Awards International Podcast of the Year. Listener, Spurs' previous game to their old Trafford clash was fully nine days before their visit to Man United. It came last Friday in the FA Cup against Burnley. The Totally Football Show is sponsored by Google Pixel, and here now is The Athletic's Charlie Eccleshare with a report on that Burnley game, something we're calling Beyond the Frame. Beyond the Frame with Google Pixel. Everything you're about to hear has been recorded using Google Pixel's Audio Magic Eraser tool. That means that instead of our journalists' audio being drowned out by the crowd, the audio sounds just the way the journalist you're about to hear wants you to. You'll hear them loud and clear thanks to Audio Magic Eraser removing distracting sounds in Beyond the Frame. Requires Google Photos app. May not work on all images or all audio elements. So one of the big things tonight from uh, Spurs' win over Burnley in the FA Cup was the movement of Brennan Johnson. It was an interesting game for Johnson because he didn't really come off for him. Uh, you know, lots of, had lots of shots, lots of take-ons, lots of crosses, no telling contribution. But watching him up close, it is really interesting because he, he stays so high and wide, which is so important to Postacoglu's system. He really wants the wingers to play like that. And his movement is really smart. A few times he'd come short for the ball, then spin in behind. Um, other times he'd vary it a bit. It would just come short and stay short. So he constantly kept the defenders guessing. And you could see they were really in two minds as to whether to try and hang back uh, or try and push on. Uh, but yeah, it was just it was an interesting thing to watch. Uh, he clearly is really smart. And you, you get the impression that he's carrying out Andrew's tactics kind of perfectly in that he's getting into all the right positions. The final ball isn't always there, the final finish. But 
that's the encouraging thing that hopefully that's something that he will develop. But yeah, impressive seeing that up close and something I hadn't really spotted quite like that before. Beyond the frame with Google Pixel. Top Brazil news. That means you, Jack Lang. Brazil manager changes. Uh, Janice Janice, he's gone. And in comes Dorival Jr. Mm. Okay, tell us about Dorival Jr. Uh, well, first, I probably have to tell you about Carlo Ancelotti, which seems the best route to that. So, okay. um, I mean, Janice Janice, they had a big crush on Carlo Ancelotti. Nice. Uh, <laughs> they were looking at him for a long, long time. And after Chichi walked away in the wake of the last World Cup, all the talk was of Ancelotti. They were trying to get him. And eventually they appointed Janice as the temporary manager with the understanding that Ancelotti would be arriving for this summer's Copa America. It was not at a kind of pre-contract level, but the federation head was confident enough that he said that, yeah, this is the plan. Ancelotti is arriving. Ancelotti always seemed to be keen on extending his Madrid contract. So like even before he spoke about it, that was the kind of noises we were hearing behind the scenes. Um, and yet, and then he did, right. you know, a few weeks ago, uh, two weeks ago now. And this is, this is just so embarrassing for Brazil. Like it's, it's so, so embarrassing. And so they have now, you know, they're now scrabbling. In the meantime, the Federation president had to, was removed from his role at the start of December, because his election, it was basically, he was elected having changed the election rules, but he was only temporary president at the time. So mm. he, you know, a court ruled that he wasn't actually allowed to change those election rules. He was removed from his role. He's now been returned to his role oh. because FIFA didn't recognize his uh, interim replacement and oh. Brazil had to register their kind of squad for the pre-Olympic tournament. And they thought, if they've got a guy FIFA doesn't recognise signing off on this, we might yeah. be disqualified from the Olympics. Right. So the justice manager reappoints this guy. Okay. He probably won't be lasting very long, but this guy like instantly is like, okay, well, the main thing I've got to do is sort out this managerial situation. Sax Janice, who is a really interesting manager, but has been, you know, had a really bad start and it really wasn't going very well. And basically, he, yeah, he's turned to Dorival Jr. Here, who is the kind of classic paid his dues manager. He's... Mm managed all the big Brazilian teams. He won the Libertadores with Flamengo in 2022. He is seen as a good manager, a competent manager, and someone who has the experience to kind of, I guess, be a safe pair of hands. So Janice was a, a big ideas manager, probably too many ideas to be an interim manager, which was, again, one of the ridiculous things that the Federation has done. And so now, yeah, they're kind of with a, a president who won't be there for very long with a manager who nobody really wanted. Hmm. And Carlo Ancelotti is like shrugging his shoulders and just saying like, oh yeah, sorry. Dorival Jr. though, as you say, did win Copa Libertadores with, with Flamengo. What kind of football do you think his Brazil are going to play? Their first match under him is, is going to be against England in, in March in a friendly. Yeah, so he's not a kind of uh, fundamentalist. So you don't, he's not really associated with any particular tactical scheme, I guess is what I mean to say. So with Flamengo, he took over a very attacking team and made it a tiny bit more sensible. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of Brazil, he's going to be taking a team that was being asked to play this very particular way under Janice and was slowly adapting, but not really adapting. Um, so I, I don't think it's going to have a very strong identity either way. I think it's going to be a case of, uh, you know, particularly in the short term, he's got to prepare them for the Copa America. He's going to be mm. taking the key players and building around them. And I think it's going to be quite a generic Brazil team, which I can see it both ways. It's a good thing, given that the results recently have been absolutely awful. But it's a bit of a shame because... Back to basics. Back to, yeah. Essentially, Janice, I think, is the kind of coach you could have appointed in a very long term with a very long term outlook and saying like let's reshape this Brazil team mm. um, into an image that people like to remember Brazil teams embodying didn't give him long enough and now they're back to this kind of like let's just cobble something together for the Copa America right more problems with more Brazilian problems with Janice than what since the days of Carlos Dunga or something <laughs> like that uh, yeah um, I mean the appointment kind of this mess 
called to mind like the kind of the years when Brazil kept turning back to world coaches mm. like you know reappointing Dunga after the 2014 World Cup and I think the, the bigger picture is it's not really to do with the coach like Dodo Virginia I'm sure he'll do okay it's not that exciting he's an okay coach the issue is at the federation level when Brazil has been a complete dumpster fire for so many years but there was this feeling four or five years ago that they were starting to sort it out so they had all these like a series of kind of crepuscular evil old white dudes who were like you know Ricardo Teixeira Jose Maria uh, Marin like a, a guy who literally stole a winner's medal when he, he was handing out medals <laughs> at a kid's football tournament like this is the level and obviously there's all sorts of corruption heading back years and five six years ago they appointed this guy Rogério Caboclo who was meant to be the new like the new broom kind of bringing the federation into the 21st century and he was you know he eventually got kind of defenestrated because he was sending kind of sexy messages to one of his secretaries and then this other guy comes in and he's temporarily been knocked off because the election was uh irregular irregular mm. election yeah they, they haven't called it like corruption but mm. irregularities in the election and so yeah i mean it's 20 24 and Brazil are being governed as if it was, yeah, the wild, wild west. Yeah. And just last Friday, kind of as a counterpoint to all of this, Brazil losing one of their greatest managers ever, one of their greatest footballing figures ever, Mario Zagallo. That's right. Yeah. Um, a year and a week after Pelé's death. And obviously, I, I wrote a piece on this for The Athletic, which mm. you uh, are welcome to read. And obviously, you know, Pelé is Mr. Brazil, but Zagallo, in many ways, I think is Mr. World Cup. He took part in seven campaigns for Brazil as player, manager, assistant manager, the only person ever to be involved in four World Cup wins, two as a player, one as a manager, one as assistant. And yes, yeah, someone who's um, was just very entwined with Brazil's uh, history over the years. And yeah, it's been a big kind of probably in a, in a way that you know, he's not he's not that big a name here due to, you know, generational reasons. But in Brazil, it was almost at the level of, of Pelé in terms of uh, the, the outcry. Well, in your piece, you say no single figure has ever been quite so entwined with the Celestial's fate as Mario Zagallo. So, yeah. Have a read of that because it's a terrific tribute to Zagallo. Uh, now, we're going to move on now to AFCON, which starts this weekend. It kicks off in the Côte d'Ivoire on Saturday. Officially, AFCON 23, taking place in 24, as is the custom these days. We're going to start dusting off previous editions of tournament and having them now. Why not? You were saying 94. Love to see that take place next summer. <laughs> anyway, uh, AFCON 23 coming up, uh, starting on Saturday. And Meher Mazahi joins us now ahead of his trip out to the Ivory Coast. Meher, how have you been? I've been good since we last spoke, Jim. I have a, a little daughter. She's nine months Woo. old. Uh, so I've been dealing with that. Yeah, thank you. What's her name? Her name is Marjan, which means uh, coral. Aww. Coral in Arabic. Um, it's um, a very Mediterranean name. She was born in Marseille, so I think, uh, I think it, it's nice. Excellent. Well, then, congratulations to you and your family and to Marjan. Uh, Maher. So looking forward to talking to you about AFCON, and you've already dropped a couple of real geography bombs on us. Hit us with one right now about your destination. Yeah, so I was telling you, Jim, assuming you're in London, that I'm actually closer to you than I am the furthest point south in Algeria, um, and that I'm going to Abidjan on Friday evening, and that's uh, further than, than Moscow would be at, at the current moment, and I do not want to go to Moscow in January, but yeah, so... It just gives you the, the a perspective on the immensity of the African continent, really, and how big it is and how, at times, that can make travel difficult. I, I cannot deal with those facts. Duncan, can you deal with the fact that where... So you're in Algiers at the moment, Maher, and that is closer to London mm. than the, the furthest point of Algeria. As the crow flies, yeah. As the crow, as the crow flies. I mean, it's, it, I love things like that. It's like Edinburgh is further west than Bristol. Um, it you know the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium is the most northerly ground to host an NFL game. So you're saying that there's no NFL host city, no in NFL America, franchise yeah. situated in a more northerly what latitude, longitude? Yeah, one of those. One of the, the, the two. Yeah. Than the Seven Sisters Road. Yeah, yeah. It's wow. the bleak, the bleak north. So uh, yeah. Damn. Jack Lang, do you want it? Oh my God! <laughs> what have you got? 
<laughs> so if you <laughs> if you went due east from New York City, which country would you arrive in? Well, I know the answer to this one. Well, your first guess was Helsinki. <laughs> oh, which no, is... You didn't say country at that oh, time. Okay, you didn't say country at that time. Carl, any uh, geography trivia you want to throw at us before we let my hair talk AFCON? No, let's get straight into AFCON. All right, let's do it. Because, yeah, absolutely. Uh, So much to look forward to here. Some huge countries involved, and especially after uh, the events of the the World Cup back in whenever that was, 2022. Mahir, can you start off by just telling us uh, what you're most excited about uh, in the Côte d'Ivoire? Yeah, if you remember, uh, last time we spoke prior to the 2021 AFCON, I was really excited to go to jazz clubs in Cameroon. Mm. This time around, I'm, I'm doing something a little more serious. I'm excited to go to the north of Cote d'Ivoire um, because the political history of Cote d'Ivoire is very intertwined with uh, football. And in the early 2000s, there was a very real risk of a civil war. And the role that Didier Drogba and his teammates um, played in reuniting the country and keeping the country unified was absolutely massive. And so I'm, I'm excited to make that trek up north to do what they did, because for a long period of time, the country was split along a horizontal axis into the Christian South and the Muslim North, between the government-held South and the rebel-held North. Um, and what Didier Drogba did after they qualified for their very first World Cup in 2006, this was in Sudan and Khartoum, immediately after the match, he's in the locker room, he grabs a microphone and a television crew and he says, can you please broadcast this message? And he calls on everybody to lay down their arms. And he told me, I had the chance to interview him around the Ballon d'Or because he's an ambassador. He told me he didn't know that this was going to have as significant of an impact as it ended up having. But uh, he told me they had actually played that clip on the nightly news every day for three months. Um, and he thinks that it must have had some kind of effect you know, on the political climate in the country. Just six months later, he goes and insists that he takes his African Ballon d'Or up north to Bouake, which is the epicenter of rebel-held territory, and he presents it to the people there. Another three months later, they play a friendly match for the first time up north in Bouake um, against Madagascar, and they win 5-0. So Didier Drogba showed so much leadership, and I'm excited to go to that stadium, which is now called the Stadium of Peace, and speak to people about the kind of impact, the real-life impact that football had on their lives. Oh, that's extraordinary. Here's so much about a uh, negative impact of uh, football sometimes, but uh, what, a, what a story that is. Ivory Coast, the host this time, hosts don't generally do too well in this tournament. What, what do you think about their chances and the, and the other favourites for AFCON 23? Can you, can you give us an idiot's guide to the runners and riders? Yeah, actually, you're, you're absolutely right, Jim, about the hosts not doing well, but that's recently, in recent history. I think over the course of uh, this is the 34th edition of the AFCON. I think we're at around 33%. About a third of the competitions were actually won by the hosts. But recently, we haven't had a host win in, since 2006. Part of that is due to, uh, with all due respect, smaller countries hosting the tournament like Equatorial Guinea and Gabon. Part of that is also due, I think, to the fact that you know infrastructure has become sort of standardized uh, in terms of like the pitches and the hotels and travel isn't as difficult as it once was, although it can still remain difficult. Um, and, and so... I think that is changing a little bit. That's a trend that is changing a little bit. But as for the the home nation, I think top to bottom, they're probably the most talented national team at this tournament. Um, You can list off the the number of players that they have, and it's just so impressive. Seko Fofana, Ibrahim Sangare, uh, Frank Kessier, uh, Simona Dingra. They they even left Wilfred Zaha at home. Um, And it's not going to hurt them that much because of the, the amount of talent they have on paper. The question really is for them is, are they going to be able to combine this and make it some sort of coherent, cohesive unit um, and actually deal with the pressure of hosting this tournament and and, and all of that? That's a question I can't answer right now. We don't know. But they are definitely considered one of the favorites. Other than that, I would put Morocco up there because of their performance at the World Cup. I would also put Senegal and Egypt there, too. Okay. What do you think about Ghana? Carl wants to know. (laughs) I do want to know. I do want to know. I'm very very worried. I think it'd be quite quite difficult for Ghana to get past the uh, quarterfinal stage from what I've made from the squad so far. Yeah, that's probably my assessment as well. Ghana, for those that don't know, are, are being led by Chris Hewton, uh, who obviously we know in the Premier League. Um, so far, he hasn't really passed the eye test. Ghana have played a little too cautiously, sometimes even at home against a team like Madagascar. He would play with two defensive midfields um, and they would need like a last minute goal to, to win that match against Madagascar at home. Um, away from home in Comoros, they lost 
which is a difficult place to go. Um, but still, no excuses. The thing with Ghana is that I think they're going to go as far as Mohamed Kudus takes them. And as unfair as that is on him, I do think that he has the psychological um, strength to really deal with it. He's somebody that when I speak to Ghanaians that know him and, and that have spoken to him, they tell me he really believes he's Superman. He believes he's as good as a Neymar or a Messi or he, he has absolutely no doubt whatsoever in his capabilities. And we've seen that the kind of flying start that he's been up to with West Ham. We saw that even last year with Ajax and during the World Cup, he's been, he's been in form for approximately like 18 months now. And so I think he, the problem is he's going to be their sole creative attacking output. Everything's got to run through him. He is capable of taking them far, but it's not really a recipe for success to rely on one player. Okay. We didn't get many goals. Certainly the group stages of the last AFCON, there's so many huge scoring threats in this tournament, not just the, the likes of Kudus, but also Victor Ozimen, the reigning African player of the year with Nigeria. Uh, Mo Salah with Egypt, who are there in Ghana's group as well. What do you, what do you make of Egypt's chances of, of giving Mo his first AFCON title? Just a quick note about the goals. We have to also remember that last time, teams arrived sometimes just a few days before the tournament started because of the COVID uh, problems and, and some clubs were not releasing their players. So for the first match day especially, were, we really suffered. We didn't really see great football. I don't expect that to be the case this time around. Egypt looked good though. And Egypt looked good because they know who they are, they know who their best players are, and they know how they want to play. They've brought in Ri Vittoria, former Benfica coach. I think he was also at Spartak Moscow and spent some time at Nasser in Saudi Arabia. Um, I think th they tell me that Pep Guardiola wrote in his book that his Benfica side were one of the toughest sides to break down. I've never read Pep Guardiola's book. I don't know if you guys can confirm that or, or deny it. But the thing is, Egypt kind of want to stray away from that. Under the Argentinian coach Hector Cooper in 2017, they were really boring and defensive. In 2021, under Carlos Queiroz, they were really boring and defensive, and they would just drag these teams out into deep waters, into you know uh, penalty shootouts, and they would win penalty shootouts. You know, and it was just—it's not really what Egyptians want. Egyptians want to play a high-paced, high-flying style of football that they played from 2006 to 2010 when they won three Afcons on the trot. And so, Rivatore has been given a four-year contract, which is unprecedented in Egypt. He's taken them until 2026 World Cup, and they asked him to be a little more balanced. And I think they are being a little more balanced. He's brought in some, some ball-carrying, passing midfielders like Imam Ashur, uh, just 24, 25 years old, who I believe was at Michelin uh, last year or the year before that, um, and is very, very talented and can, can actually play football in midfield. Because other than that, they would just use scrappy defensive midfielders and give the ball to Salah and, and wait for him to create magic. But their attacking line, so informed. Omar Marmouche has been one of the best uh, informed players in the Bundesliga with Eintracht Frankfurt. Mustafa Mohamed has been a real solid option for Nantes and France for the last 18 months. Uh, and Mohamed Salah this year, I mean, he, he hasn't lost a touch. He gets better as he ages. And I think he's been more creative as well. And I think we're going to see that side of him with Egypt. A little more of a creator and a little bit less of a goal scorer. Just wanted to point out that uh, Salah, for obvious reasons, um, and Marmouche as well are both in the uh, AFCON radar, which launches on Friday on The Athletic. Featuring contributions from Mr. Carl Anker as well on, oh, yeah. on Kudos. Oh, nice. Okay, and excellent. Uh, the team that beat Egypt in the final last time are the holders of course Senegal. Are their prospects, Maher? Yeah, look, Senegal are defending champions. I always put the defending champions and the hosts as one of my favorites. Um, my problem with Senegal is that I think they're between generations. The, the spine of that generation of 2021 that won them the cup is Khalidou Koulibaly, Edouard Mendy, Idrissa Ganagé, Sadio Mane. And they've almost all made you know, moves to Saudi Arabia and they're all sort of getting to a, a level of form with their club play where we're starting to worry about them a little bit. Uh, they do have a lot of young, talented players, players like Pap Matarsar at Tottenham, players like Lamine Kamara at Metz who might not maybe have maybe you guys haven't heard of him yet in the Premier League, but he's the the young African Player of the Year during the CAF Awards, and he's been absolutely fantastic over the last twelve months with the Senegal Under Twenty Three side and Under Twenty side. He's going to be a, a star in the Premier League in years to come. Um, so they have like young midfielders like that. They have a kid that's just fifteen years old. He's not in the squad this time. Uh, Amara Diouf, who's going to be maybe Sadio Mane's successor. So there's a, a young generation of players coming through, and there's an older calcified. Uh, generation of players that are just not maybe have lost more than a yard of pace and I'm interested to see how the coach Alucisi is going to navigate that is he going to over rely on the older generation is he going to over rely on the younger generation or is he going to find the perfect transition and, and alchemy and take them to another very deep okay. run and Morocco what, what do you make of their chances of continuing that incredible run at the World Cup that took them all the way to the, the semi-final defeat to France 
Uh, that was absolutely magical. I mean, that was a dream come true for, for many African countries. Um, but I have one problem with Morocco, and I've been saying this everywhere, and I kind of feel guilty about it, but Morocco were very much a reactive, out-of-possession side at the World Cup. They had less possession of the football against uh, Belgium, against Croatia, against uh, Croatia the first time, against Spain, Portugal, I think even against Canada, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and they would sit back, compact, close those half spaces, you know, and, and hit you on the counterattack. Okay, that can work in the World Cup when you're playing against sides that are expecting to have more of the ball. But is that going to work in the group stages against Zambia or Tanzania, even DR Congo? I'm not sure. And so I'm interested to see that difference, you know, when Morocco has more possession of the ball, when they have to take the onus and, and break down opposing defenses with a deep-lying uh, defending block. Are they going to be able to do that? That's what I'm not sure about. I think they're a side that's much better out of possession than in possession. And I think we might see uh, a little bit of a difference in their performance from the previous World Cup. Last seven editions, Maher, have had seven different winners. Who's your money on this time? Oh, pressure's on. <laughs> that's, that's a difficult one. Um, my four favorites are, are Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire, Egypt, and Morocco. Right. Um, I think they're the, the sides that we have the least amount of questions of. I think those sides are expecting to at least get to the semifinals. Um, if I were to put a pretty penny on one of those options, I'm thinking Egypt. I, I think the writing seems on the wall. Mohamed Salah finally needs that AFCON, you know, that he's been chasing. They made it to the finals two out of the last three editions. And they're really in form, especially that, that attacking line that I was talking about. And they're very experienced in, in defense. So I think they have the right amount of, you know, that's a very, that's a cliche, the right amount of mm. experience and young players, blah, blah, blah. But I, I really do think that's the case for Egypt. And I think that Mohamed Salah deserves one. And I think the football gods will smile down upon him and deliver him okay. his first AFCON trophy. It's right here on the wall year after. You can't say fairer than the Egyptians, of course, because they pretty much invented uh, that stuff. Uh, <laughs> excellent. We haven't mentioned Cameroon, should we? Not, not as long as they have Rigobert Song as a head coach, and this might be harsh because you know he's an African football legend. Uh, I don't think we should mention Cameroon. He's shown that he can't man manage a group. He sent Andre Onana home for wanting to distribute the ball to his defenders last time. Uh, he said, "Please kick it, kick the ball away, boot it away." And Onana said, "No, I, I think this is the right thing to do. I've been doing it with Ajax and United." And then they got into a back and forth, and he sent them home. Mm. So he can't deal with big personalities. He doesn't sometimes doesn't know every single player in his squad. He's had trouble pronouncing names. And Cameroonians tell me that it's his assistant coach, the Frenchman, uh, Sebastien Minier, that's actually drawing up the side and, and drawing up the tactics. And he's just sort of a figurehead. So as long as they have him at the head of the national team, I'm a little bit pessimistic about the indomitable lines. Okay. If we're going to talk about goals, one thing that's fascinated me, is uh, just how has Nigeria managed to have so many strikers at this point in time? Their, their squad runs very, very deep with so much attack and quality. I would like to see a sociological study done on how Nigeria produces so many strikers. Um, and, and sort of when I, I've seen this elsewhere on the continent, for example, with Cameroon. Cameroon have produced uh, a successive line of goalkeepers since the 1980s. And it starts with Thomas Nkono and Joseph Antoine Bell. They are uh, two contemporaries who are probably two top 10 African goalkeepers of all time. And they credit their success to this Yugoslavian coach they brought in uh, in the 1970s, who was more of a volleyball and handball coach. But he just taught them so much about, you know, dexterity and using their hands that they ended up doing so well. Thomas Nkono creates an academy. I believe Car Carlos Kameni is one of his, uh, you know, academy graduates, and they pass that on. And not to mention that people in Cameroon are now see these superstars in goal, and they want to copy them, and they want, you know, kids want to be the, the next Cameroonian goalkeeper instead of a striker. And so I think there's an element of that, of know-how know being passed down, um, seeing the path, you know, on television. Um, I think there's an element of that as well. And even for Nigeria, they have a very long list of, of strikers, you know, that precede the likes of Ozeman. Um, that I think uh, explains it a little bit. But it is absolutely fascinating to see how they produce so many strikers, and I'll throw a little wrench in it, how they score li so little goals, <laughs> because they've only scored one goal in each of their last two games in the FIFA international window against Lesotho and Zimbabwe, which, again, all due respect, they should be scoring more uh, goals against uh, those kinds of opposition. Excellent. Great question and a great answer as well. Thank you so much for that, Carl and Maher. And, uh, yeah, have a great flight. Speak to you soon. Thank you, guys. Speak soon. Peace. Excellent, Maher Mazahi there joining us ahead of his trip down to Côte d'Ivoire where things get underway, as mentioned, 8pm 
UK time on Saturday with Ivory Coast Côte d'Ivoire taking on Guinea-Bissau. 8pm UK time being in the Ivory Coast, Duncan. 8pm. Incredible. Geography, eh? Yeah. Geography. Uh, the whole tournament in the UK, at least, is available on Sky Sports. Ooh, also, the Asian Cup kicks off this weekend. We mentioned that back at the start. We'll be keeping you abreast of events there. And we're having a bit of a preview on that, I think, next week. Next week before the uh, key fixtures get underway. Uh, that, though, brings us to the end of today's Totally Football show. Got another one coming up Sunday, reacting to, I mean, whatever's happened, basically. For now, many, many thanks to Duncan, to Carl, to Jack, Rachel and Charlie, you listener. I hope you have a great weekend and we'll speak to you soon. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Discover bonus video content by searching for The Totally Football Show on YouTube and see the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic.